said, oh, they're giants and we're like little grasshoppers in their sight and we can never go. And, and, and though, even though Joshua and Caleb said, hey, it's a great land and God's going to help take it, help us take it, the rest of them persuaded. And because of their unbelief, God said, you're going you're to go for about 40 years in this wilderness, in this desert. And of all the things the Israelites did, one of the most interesting things that God was most upset, most angry with them, was uh, not what we would think. I mean, was he angry when they made the golden calf in idolatry? Yes, God was upset about that. And, and if they would do other wicked, wicked things, he was upset about that. But you know what we don't talk about, we don't preach about, we don't, we don't like to think about too much? God got just, it seems like, the angriest at the people when they did this terrible sin of complaining. When they would murmur and complain and fuss and God did some very serious stuff to correct them, and it just seemed like time after time they wouldn't listen. So one time they complained about something that I'm sure none of you have ever complained about. They complained about their food. They complained about having to eat the same thing over and over and over. None of you have ever done that. That's a great sin we know from the Old Testament. You haven't done that, but some people did back in the Old Testament. I see some, some elbowing going on, some knowing looks. But they basically said, why'd you bring us out here, God? Why'd you bring us out here, Moses? We're, we're just wandering around the desert. We're going to die. There's no good water, no good food, and this manna stuff. We don't even know what this is. We're sick of it. We've had to eat it day after day after day. And God had enough of that. And the Bible says that he sent venomous serpents into the mix of the Israelites. And these serpents started attacking the people of Israel who were complaining and murmuring. And, and eventually they, they wake up and say, oh, we might have done a bad thing. And so they go to Moses and this is all in Numbers chapter 21. They go to Moses and they say, uh, Moses, would you please pray for us? You know, we, we couldn't stand you. We didn't know why you brought us out here yesterday. But today we believe in your power and your connection to God. Please pray for us. We've done wrong. And Moses did pray. And God commanded him to take a serpent, a bronze serpent, so this very thing that they were suffering from, this nasty-looking, fearsome-looking thing that they were suffering from, he said, make a, make a brass Im image of this and put it up on a pole and tell the people that whenever they look, they will live. Now, this is interesting because I think most of us would think, okay, God's going to have some real big thing for them to prove Make sure they prove they were wrong and, and admit and that they do all kinds of things. And eventually they'll work their way back into his graces and then maybe he'll let them live. But God simply told Moses, put this brass serpent on a pole and you tell the people, look and live. And the Bible says, whenever someone who had been infected with the venomous snake poison simply looked, they lived. They trusted the word. Can you imagine if there was someone out there who might have said, that's too easy. I'm not looking at that old thing. And simply they had to look and to live. 
Well, in John chapter 3, where we're going to be uh, looking this morning, Jesus, as he talks to Nicodemus, he gives the people, he gives Nicodemus and then us some imagery that, that hails back to that time. And I'm going to ask right now if you would please stand in honor and reverence of the reading of God's word. And we're going to look at John chapter 3, beginning in verse 14. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. Let's pray. Lord God, we, we come to you and we ask that you would help us to be crystal clear about the message of eternal life that you give in your word. God, we pray that you would just help us to understand, to believe, and to share very clearly this message of life, that we would not falter, that we would not change under pressure, under the changing a course of society and culture, and we wouldn't follow fads, but we'd stick to the eternal truth of your word. Thank you for saving us, not because of anything great we've done, but thank you for saving us from our sinfulness and rebellion through a free gift of your son, Jesus Christ. God, we pray these things in his name. Amen. You can be seated. John 3.16 is very likely the most famous and well-known Bible verse uh, in history. We know the Bible is the all-time best-selling book. I don't know if you realize that over time, but not just over time, because some of you think, oh, yeah, they bought lots of love them back in, you know, the 1800s or something. No, the Bible continues to be the best-selling book year after year after year. That doesn't mean we read it. It doesn't mean that we get into it and, and dive in and, and allow it to enter our hearts the way we should. But the reality is this is the best-selling book year after year after year. And that is the most well-known verse, John 3.16. And yet it's interesting that it might be one of the most misunderstood or ignored verses. We may see it in stadiums. We may see it, you know, on poster board and and. Tebow used to do the under his eyes in the eye black thing. But what does it really mean for God to do this for us, this conversation with Nicodemus? Nicodemus was the head honcho. He was the big time, most well-respected religious leader of the day. Everybody knew Nicodemus. Everybody talked about him. Uh, we might equate him to uh, Billy Graham, you know, or, or a Mother Teresa. This was 
In that day, that's the kind of stature Nicodemus had. Everybody knew him. Everybody admired him. Everybody thought he was this great religious leader. And he comes to Jesus at night. And John, John is so interesting. John uses contrast. If you, not just in the Gospel of John, but if you read 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, everything that John writes, he's full of contrast and full of imagery. And so when he says that, that Nicodemus comes to him at night, it's not just that he literally came at nighttime. It's also, it means that Nicodemus came to him in darkness. Nicodemus came to him without an understanding of the clear light of the gospel. And he begins to ask Jesus these questions, and Jesus begins to respond. And we've already talked about how Jesus told him, you have to be born again. And he said, what's that? And Jesus explained it. It's, it's not another, a second physical birth. It's a, it is a second type of birth. It is a spiritual birth. And so he keeps talking to Nicodemus, and he's explaining all these things. And he says, look, no one has been to heaven but the one who comes down from heaven. And that's He's obviously talking about himself. And then he cites this example of this bra, brand, ugh, bronze serpent that, he, that Moses lifted up in the wilderness. And everybody had to look to live. And he says, just as Moses lifted up that ser serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man, when he is lifted up, that's when we'll be, there'll be salvation, Right? And it's interesting that the words that's translated here, lifted up, can be used literally, as in lifting up that on a pole, something on a pole, but it can also mean exalted. Something being lifted up is exalted. And so Jesus was, in the way that only God could do, when he was placed on the cross, in the most horrific the most shameful death possible. He was put on display. He was lifted up for the world to see, for passersby to mock, to spit on, to revile. And yet that shame, as he bore our sins on the cross, yours and mine, as he took on all of our transgressions, all of our failings and all of our faults, as he took those on on the cross, not only was he literally lifted up from the ground, but he was also exalted. Because it's in suffering and in sacrifice that our God is glorified. As we understand that he's not a God who simply wishes to rain down punishment on us, that he is a God of compassion who wishes to redeem us, even when we mess up badly. God is there for us, and he doesn't give up on us. And so he tells Nicodemus, look, just like that, just like the serpent was lifted up and people had to look at this awful, terrible, ugly thing. I mean, you know, don't you, don't you think that it would have made people feel better if Moses had put like a fuzzy little desert bunny up there on top of the pole and everybody could say, Oh, that's so cute. I've forgotten all about the snake. And, and, and that's the way that they were healed. I mean, that'd be the kind, gentle way we might say that we should do things. You know, someone might be triggered by that, Moses. They've had enough snakes. You know, you're putting another one up there for us to look at. But God put a, bra a bronze snake 
so that in looking, they would believe and they would understand that their redemption came at a great price. Their redemption came because of the sin they had committed. And so they would believe in that physical salvation which was being provided. And they would also believe, hey, this our sin caused this sickness, and yet God's faithfulness and love for us, if we trust him, if we believe him, then we can be healed from it. And that very same way, I'm sure that God could have had a way for Jesus to go throughout his ministry and for human eyes to never see the suffering and torment that he went through on our behalf. And yet God allowed this picture on the cross of a man that Isaiah tells us that there was, there was nothing in him good to look at. That I mean, he took everything. He was on that cross and he suffered and he bled. And it was an atrocious image. And yet it was the image of a God who would go to the greatest lengths to redeem us who would rebel against him. What a powerful story. But it seems like it should be a simple story, though. It should be something that all of us can understand, all of us can grasp, all of us can say, yes, God did something for me that I couldn't do for myself. But I want to tell you, I found something just troubling. I've, I've noticed it over time, but I found something especially troubling this week as I, as I look through different commentators and scholars, of one's on the left, one's on the right, all in between. And you know what? Over and over I saw so many people saying was, well, it's not really as simple as John 3.16. There's got to be more. It's not just believing. There's, there's got to be some extra stuff. And so folks from all ends of the spectrum, theologically and politically, they've all tried to add something else. Well, it's not just believing. You've, you've got to pray and surrender and, and trust and commit. And, and, and there's this long list of long things. And if you've done this, do this and this and this and this and this. And then once you're saved, if you're really saved, you're going to behave like this and this and this and this. And you're, you're, you're never going to. And what I've found is within the world of Christianity, and it doesn't matter if it's left or right, there is this huge judgmentalism. It says what God did for us is not enough. We need to, we need to add a little extra to it. <laughs> it. It can't be as simple as believing. And I thought, why do we do this? Why do we take what God has said, here's the way it is, and somehow we think we need to improve upon it? And I thought, sometimes, sometimes I sensed almost this this idea that the folks were afraid of God being taken advantage of. Like maybe God was a little bit naive when he made up this whole salvation plan. And, and they were kind of afraid that people may get to be Christians and it'd be just too easy. And so they were going to kind of toughen and tighten the standards. And by the way, like I said, this was on all sides. Now, it, it seemed to be those, those who were more on the left, their standard was, well, if you're a real Christian, you fight for 
social justice and you fight poverty and you do this and that. And, and those who are on the other side, they were like, well, if you believe this and don't do this sexual behavior and do the, but, but there were any way side you looked at it, there was all these voices calling out and saying, well, if you're a real Christian and now some would say, then if you didn't do all that stuff, then it proved you were really not a Christian at all. And others would say, well, you were a Christian, but you lost it. I mean, God just kind of gave you this little conditional pass, and as long as you were perfect, you were fine. But then when you didn't help that poor person, when you said that bad word, when you had that bad thought, you lost it. And over and over again, in the Christian world, there are people complicating and adding to what God clearly said. You know, if you check out the book of Revelation, there's some pretty good warnings in there about adding to God's word, about trying to put our own rules on top of his. But what does he say? In verse 15, 16, and 17, listen for the words, the word belief or some variation of it. Verse 15, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. Verse 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Skip over to verse 18. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already, because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. You may have friends and family members who talk just to talk, who repeat themselves just to hear their voice. But when God repeats something, and especially when he repeats it three times in a row, it is an emphasis for us. Just as the word of God tells us, holy God is holy, holy, holy. It's emphasizing, pay attention here. I've got a message about God. He's holy. You need to get this. And when the gospel of John, which is the one gospel of the four, which clearly tells us that its purpose is for people to know and be sure that they have eternal life, when it tells us in chapter 3, in these three verses right here together, that you are to simply believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. You'll have everlasting life, and you won't perish. God's not stuttering. He's not accidentally repeating himself. He's being very clear about the condition for membership in his family. That's a wonderful, wonderful thing. Because if I was wondering, did I say the right prayer? You know, was that version of the sinner's prayer that I said when I was 8 or 12 or 20, was it the right exact thing? Did I, did I confess every single sin? Did I fully commit myself to him? Ha, have I lived this? We can spend our whole life in fear and doubt and confusion if we start looking at ourselves and our actions for eternal life. But when we look at the promises of God, rather than ourselves. We take our focus of our, off of ourselves and we look at God and his promises and he clearly says, believe in me 
and you won't perish, but you'll have everlasting life. We don't have to spend all this time worrying, wondering, moaning, did I really do it, did I not? You know in your heart whether you believe in Jesus or not. Just like you know whether you believe the earth is round or, or flat. You know that. You know what your belief is. You don't have to question, hmm, you know, I know there's some popular NBA players who said the world's flat recently. Maybe I should reconsider my view. No, you, you know. And very simply, the same thing comes to your, uh, your belief about God. Do I believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross for me and that his promise is that if I trust in him for my salvation, then I'm going to have eternal life? Yes or no? Like I said, some people are bothered by that. Because sometimes they think, well, you know, people are taking advantage of God. He's the same God who was able to call up serpents in the desert. I think God can take care of himself. I think you're not going to take advantage of him. You may try, you may think you are, but I think God's all right. But then there's another thing that some believers say and feel and think, and that, you know, that is, well, you know, they're just, they're just getting away with things. Not so much that God is, you know, getting taken advantage of, but, but there's just no consequences. If you believe that it's that simple to be saved, well, then people can just go out and live like the devil. If I had a nickel for every time I've heard that type of phrase, well, it can't be that simple. Because if you just believe, then, then you could just go out and live like the devil. Do all you want. Let's go back to point A. God can't be taken advantage of. The Bible clearly says the Lord disciplines those he loves. And we know this with human parents. As flawed and as sinful as we are, one of the most unloving, worst kind of parent you can be is the do whatever you want. I'm the cool parent. I let my kids figure it all out. I, I just let them have their freedom. And we know in reality that that is a horrible parent because they're not teaching and training their child what it is to live right. And the Bible clearly teaches us that when we are believers, we have the Holy Spirit of God within us. And if we begin to walk and to live and to sin, that Holy Spirit will convict us. And if we do not listen, if we do not respond to that Holy Spirit, God will increasingly discipline us and do whatever it takes to get us where we need to be. And guess what? God says, and if, if at some point they just got hard in their heart, I can bring them on home where I'm going to take care of this measure on this side of eternity. But God is not taken advantage of. Secondly, because our belief in Jesus Christ, receiving that free gift is what it takes for us to be Christians, does not mean that there are no consequences to our action. Over and over, the Bible tells us that there are many consequences to our action. This the whole concept of repenting, of turning from evil ways and doing what's right. Why? Because God knows that there are terrible consequences for those who walk in rebellion against him. Some of those are natural consequences that are built into the way this world works. Some of them are his loving hand of discipline upon us. But we will answer, the Bible says, for every idle word. 
The Bible says that we will all stand before him at the judgment seat of Christ to account for the things that we have done in the body. And this standing before him at the judgment seat of Christ is not a a question of whether we're going to heaven or not. That was settled the moment. That was already settled in life when we chose to believe or not believe. But when we stand before God in eternity one day, we will have a sit down with him. Let's call it an annual review or more likely a lifetime review. And it will be God in his love and in his grace, but also in his honesty saying, what have you done with what I've given you? The time, the talents, the opportunities, the grace that I've given you, how have you used it? Paul described it this way in his uh, letter to the Corinthians. He said, there's going to be this refining fire, not a punishing fire, a refining fire that will show us what we've done in this life. And he said, there's going to be some who their life was built on wood, hay, and stubble. You know what that sounds like to me? That sounds like fire starter. That sounds like stuff that's going to get my burn pile going really, really good. Wood, hay, and stubble. And those are the temporary, trivial things of life that we all get caught up in. Recognition, pride, jealousy, greed, all of these things of life that we get wrapped up in. And people have, Christians have built their life. They've built a life, but they've built it with wood, hay, and stubble. That is temporary things. They haven't focused on eternal things. And the Bible says that when they stand before Christ on that day, that wood, hay, and stubble, what's it going to do? It's going to go up in smoke. And they'll be saved so as by fire. What that means is, hey, All that trivial stuff that you've wasted your whole life, it's going to be burned up. And you enter into heaven, but you enter into heaven as a Christian who wasted your life, a Christian who stood before God and did not hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant, rather one who was faced to confront the reality that you wasted your life. And that even what you do in eternity, although you'll be in heaven, will be affected by what you didn't do here in this life. On the other hand, Paul says, there's gold and silver and precious stones. And those, when they undergo the fire, yeah, there's some junk that comes off, right? There's some impure elements that are going to be let out of gold and silver when they are put under fire. And yet, when they pass through the fire and those impurities are removed, yet the precious work of our lives will still remain. And God will look upon us and those who have faithfully served him. And that is those who will be able to say, he'll be able to say, well done, good and faithful servant too. This isn't a matter of pride. This isn't a matter of arrogance. This is not a matter of us justifying ourselves before God. We'll have no part in that fire. We can't fake it. We can't hide behind the curtain. But we will all answer to God one day. And if we've lived lives that are faithful, lived lives where we've confessed our disobedience and failures, then we'll be able to stand before him. And we'll be able to look forward to entering in his presence with joy. There's very real consequences for your sin and my sin. Whether we think no one's looking, whether we think we'll get away with it, There are very real consequences. 
But the bottom line is this. Your eternal salvation has nothing to do with your works, your actions, your goodness, before, during, or after you meet Christ. Your eternal destiny is up to one thing, and that is, do you believe God's offer? Do you put your faith in his word when he says, believe in me? When he's lifted up on the cross so that all can see, have you trusted that? Do you trust that? That is the simple question. And so just like Moses said to those folks in the desert, look and live. Jesus has the same message for us today. Look and live. You don't work. You don't, you don't get good enough. You don't, and here's a concept you hear talked about all the time today. You don't redeem yourself. Nobody redeems themselves. We are unredeemable. That's why God did for us, because we couldn't do it for ourselves. Only God's precious blood, his son, was able to redeem us. And so as Moses said, look and live, today we must echo the words of Jesus when he called Nicodemus and everyone since then to look upon him and live. Put your faith in Jesus Christ. Would you pray with me? Father God, help us to be ultra clear that what we do matters, how we live our lives matter, that how we treat the poor, how we conduct ourselves with, our, with the sexuality you've given us, with the, with the money you've given us, with everything. Everything we do matters. And yet, God... None of that saves us. Help us to understand that we can only come into a relationship with you through faith. And so that there is no pride, no basis for pride or arrogance or feeling like we're anybody else, any better than anybody else. God, you know that we are simply beggars telling other beggars where they can find bread when we share the message of the gospel of salvation through your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, help us to understand and believe and live these things and help us as we are Christians to live for you, not because we're worried that all of a sudden we may lose our salvation or worried about what other people think, but God, simply because we are grateful for what you've done how you've blessed us, and we want to live lives that honor you and so that one day in eternity we can serve you, not just here in this life, but even in a greater way in the next life. God, be with us now as we sing. May we not just look at words on a page or a screen, but really encounter you in these moments ahead. Father, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.